Ohio Supreme Court Justice Pat DeWine participated in an order Thursday that his father sit for a deposition and he doesn't see a conflict of interest. We are in the twilight zone on this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with three people I love having a conversation with. Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, Laura Johnston. We're not going to have a conversation about the Supreme Court order yesterday that Senate President Matt Huffman and House Speaker Bob Cup do have to provide discovery and sit for depositions in their gerrymandering case. No surprise there. We were saying all week that would happen. I am kind of stunned, though, that Pat DeWine did participate in an order that his father be deposed. I mean, that that boggles my mind. There is not a single solitary person that doesn't see that as a conflict but him. So I wanted to ask you a question. If he is living in some alternate reality where that's not a conflict, what else might he see differently? Do you think he gets up every day to like a blood red sky or something? Or, you know, I mean, I try to play <laughs> devil's advocate and and see things from the other guy's perspective. I cannot come up with anything that justifies what he's doing. Does anybody want to play the devil's advocate with Pat DeWine and get into his head <laughs> and say, this is why it's not a conflict of interest? No. <laughs> you know, I, I do worry that there's something more sinister going on here, that this is part of an insidious attempt to maintain the veto-proof majority, and people have persuaded him to stay on the case in the face of all all good judgment to keep his finger on the scale. And that would be sad because he's really playing with his legal career here. This is so wrong. Well, they have, he has the, go ahead. Go ahead. No, he has, he he has the power of a severely gerrymandered state behind him. All of them do cup Huffman. They know that there's a super majority in the assembly. You know, it's strictly gerrymandered in this state. There there will be no consequences. No, there will be. This is judicial canons. He he's as a judge participated in an order that his father be deposed. That's just completely unholy. You cannot do it. It's it's mind boggling that he did that. That's the moment you would think he'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is an order that my father be deposed. I guess I do have a conflict. I need to recuse myself. I mean, when do the scales fall from his eyes so he sees the reality? Mind-boggling. And we'll continue to talk about this, I'm sure. But let's talk about some other things. What happened when a contingent of anti-mask activists showed up en masse to disrupt a Lakewood school board meeting this week? Laura Johnson, this one got away from me. I didn't see it until it was a, a Sun newspaper story. And I, I was surprised. I mean, Lakewood School Board gets together and they're basically disrupted into abandonment. Yeah, this is really disturbing. The board actually had to adjourn early because of this disruption that all of these people created. And they came intent on creating a disruption. This wasn't like something that got out of hand. And what's even more interesting is these were not Lakewood residents. These aren't people with kids in the school who say, I don't want my kids to wear a mask. They're having trouble wearing the mask. They can't concentrate. They can't breathe, whatever. This is from all over the state no kids and they were rude and crude and they refused to wear masks. So they just disbanded and said, next time we'll be better prepared for this. But I don't know how you knew that you needed to be prepared for this. Well, they weren't wearing masks and you're required to wear a mask there. So they could have had right. police officers escort them out. And if they were shouting them down in uncivil fashion, they can be removed too. It sounds like even though they did have security and maybe a police officer there they didn't feel like they had the officers they needed 
to completely take control. And when she says she's forming a security plan now, I imagine that that's what it is. The scary thing is, is that they won't come back here, that this is really something where they're strategically picking vulnerable boards that won't be ready for them, showing up and barking like dogs at the school board members. And I mean, the the board president said these are not Lakewood residents, that Lakewood Lakewood has had people come to meetings who are anti the mask mandate and they speak with some civility. This was this contingent that just decided to swoop in and make life hell for Lake board, Lakewood school board members. Yeah, th- it's really unconscionable to me. And I would not have imagined something like this. I don't I can't wrap my head around why you feel like you need to come and mess up somebody else's meeting because you don't agree with their policies. It's not your board. It's not your school's. And I understand that people feel like this is a, a civil rights issue, which, I mean, that's a big No, stretch, I, I, but I don't understand that. I, I think that's ludicrous in every I way I do think possible. it's ludicrous. But, like, I don't get why they're just intent on, on going places that they don't live and causing havoc. Well, Layla and I were talking about a theory the other day that it's mental illness because some kind of chemical is being put into fast food. It, it's like, <laughs> it's just good at explanations. That's... I mean, why would you show up at a school board that you don't have anything right. to do with and bark at them about things that don't affect you? Because it's, it's you like told me weird. To. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like <laughs> this is really kind of a form of mass mental illness. It's the Salem witch trials. It's bizarre. You know, uh, I, Layla I, this must be the worst time to be a school board member. You know, these people, yeah. a lot of them are, are public servants who, you know, really just want to be uh, kind of the guiding light for their school, you know, for their school districts. And they are being subjected to the worst kind of abuse. Hannah Drown is working on a story actually this week. She has gone deep on the, the you know, the question of why are, why are so many of our districts seeing these record number of candidates running for school dis- school board and she's talked to dozens of people i mean really she's gone so far into the into this and she's talked to school board members who are not seeking re-election because they're saying i did not sign up for this abuse <laughs> and and it's so it's interesting so to hear their perspective it is so sad to be but losing public service i know, you know th- i know they wanted to talk about like you know, third grade reading guarantees. And now they're being forced to That's like right. adjourn meetings because people are screaming at them. Right. But people who are not even voters in their community. <laughs> right. But I, I wonder why there are no criminal, I mean, you know, that's disorderly conduct, disturbing the peace, trespassing. I mean, these people are getting away with it because there are no consequences. They just go from school to school. But I just wonder if there are charges that can be brought to maybe deter this kind of behavior. Well, I I do wonder whether part of the budgeting for school boards now will have to be to have a security force ready for loons. This is not going away. It's been showing up everywhere. Uh, And poor Lakewood just trying to get together and do their jobs. They had to shut it down because they could not continue because of this. I it's we live in strange times. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Here's some good news from the Ohio legislature. Those are words we don't get to say very often. What are lawmakers doing to reduce the number of women who die in the months after they give birth? Lisa Garvin, this is kind of extraordinary. Our our overwhelmingly Republican legislature is expanding Medicaid to help poor people who give birth. I mean, just 
kind of boggles the mind that they did this. It really does, but it also warms the cockles of your heart, you have to admit. But what's happening is Medicaid coverage for women postpartum is currently 60 days. They're actually moving it up to 12 full months and this will be effective for five years starting April 1st of next year. This is ARPA money that's helping them expand the Medicaid here. Um, they figure the cost for this in Ohio will be about $4 million this year and the next fiscal year. And then the feds will be chipping in $11 million a year. But this is awesome. A full year of postpartum coverage. I mean, that's amazing. Uh, this will cover about 14,000 women a year in Ohio. And, you know, a lot of, you know, maternal mortality often has to do with comorbidities like diabetes, heart disease, obesity. And so, after they give birth, they're kind of thrown to the wind. It's like, okay, take care of yourself and your baby. So, I mean, this is amazing that these women will be followed for a full year after birth. Yeah, it's, what's nice is the legislature had directed the Medicaid department to get permission to do this for a couple right. of years. And then the federal government came out and said, well, we're going to make it available for five and and we're providing it. I mean, this legislature hasn't always done with Medicaid what it could to help people, but they are. And and it's to save the lives of moms. It's a it's a great thing. Um, really, I'm, I was so glad to be able to put this up high in the podcast schedule because it's just good news all around. And hopefully it'll help some people thrive. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is there an argument to be made for reducing the number of judges working in Cuyahoga County based on caseload and the drop in our population from our peak days? Leila Tassi, anybody that's paid attention to courts has had this buzzing in the background for quite some time. We all know there is a contingent of judges that don't work or don't work hard. And and it, it has made the budget bigger. We have lots of visiting judges that end up coming in to handle the caseload. And it's really unfair to the to the judges that work their butts off, like Kathleen Satula and Sherry Madej and some others. I mean, we have most of the judges doing a great job, working hard, moving cases. But we do appear to have way too many. And is there is is there going to be a battle here to reduce their ranks? I think there could be. And and what has brought this question out to the fore right now is the issue of the astronomical cost of building a new courthouse or renovating the existing one downtown because that would have to be ADA compliant and could end up being even more expensive than building building a fresh building here. And, uh, you know, we don't know exactly how much we're talking, but it could be in the ballpark of half a billion dollars. So the county's consultant, Jeff Applebaum, said there are a couple ways to reduce that expense, and they involve streamlining the court. One idea is to make judges share courtrooms and other spaces, and another would be to house judicial staff in another building altogether. Neither of those would be popular with judges who don't want to be separated from this, their staff or share space. But then County Councilman Michael Gallagher floated this third idea, which would be reduce the number of judges. He said, we have too many of them compared to other counties, but changing that would require an act of the legislature, which sets that number based on recommendations from the Ohio Supreme Court. They look at factors like population and caseload to make that determination. So when we looked at that, we found that Cuyahoga County's population obviously has been on the decline at about 1.26 million per the, the latest census. And Franklin County, by comparison, has a population that's climbing with 1.32 uh, million. And when it comes to criminal and civil case filings per judge per year, Cuyahoga County's average for the past decade was 
1,079 new filings for each of its 34 judges. And in Franklin County, which has 17 judges, the average per year was 1,380. And that's all according to Ohio Supreme Court data. So, you know, uh, this this is an interesting start of the debate. We don't know which direction it's going to go. Judge Brendan Sheehan, the administrative judge for the court and and former Ohio Supreme Court Justice Paul Pfeiffer, who's in charge of the Ohio Judicial Conference, they had some opinions that they shared with with Courtney Astolfi. They feel like, you know, Franklin uses Franklin County uses a lot of magistrates to hear trials. Magistrates aren't accountable to the voting public. Cuyahoga County judges handle more cases than the statewide average. Um, you know, so basically, uh, you know, she said that Gallagher doesn't really know what he's talking about. He's really out of his lane discussing reducing the number of judges. It's kind of that old except, shut up and except, argument. <laughs> but except that Gallagher isn't incorrect. We, I mean, anybody that's paid any attention to that courthouse knows there are judges that aren't doing work. They aren't showing up. They, they don't move cases. And I think that what this argument's going to do is shine a light on that. There was a day. Um, and we're going back now a long way where we had a much better vehicle to check the, who was showing up for work. We would use the garage key cards and things. And what the judges have done over time is make it almost impossible to see when they're in the courthouse and when they're not. You'd have to be there every day and going from floor to floor. But you can see how many cases they move. You can right. see how many inmates they are keeping in the jail because they're not moving their cases. There's a bunch exactly. of them and they don't work hard. I mean, it's, and look, the people who do work hard, the judges that do work hard, they will, they talk about this. They're, they, they resent it because it puts a stain on the whole court when many of the judges are doing good things. So I look, this is a, a needed discussion. There needs to be a spotlight on the judges. Brendan Sheehan should be doing it himself. He should be the guy going to these judges saying, damn it, you are not doing enough here. You're going to to bring disfavor to the whole place. Do your job or or stop running for judge. Yeah, right? I agree. I, I yes. And I think I think also, though, it, I mean, I we were sort of expecting Michael Gallagher to come to the table with some some hard figures to, to shore up his his argument. And um, we were surprised that 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 wasn't the case. And that kind of did leave him vulnerable to this this, you know, to she and refuting him and and uh, pushing back in, in with these arguments. Uh, so I, I, we'll see how this goes. I think the, it, it's all going to come out the wash. <laughs> the problem for Sheehan is every prosecutor, every defense attorney, they, everybody knows this truth. Everybody does. They've been everybody's talked about it for years. Nobody's done anything about it. Michael Gallagher, at least, is trying to do something about it. We talk about the county council all the time and about whether they're effective. Well, this is a great move by Michael Gallagher let me, to let me show ask some you this credibility. Question, though. So reducing the number of judges, you, you might end up with the ones that don't work. And so you're going to you're going to have perhaps a giant backlog on some of these judges who I mean, is it better to have fewer judges with 1300 cases a year? Uh, I, I I don't know. I mean, don't you think that could lead to greater backlogs in the system? Uh, but, but that's accepting failure. But that's accepting failure. I think if you actually talk about this in an adult way, about we have too many judges, clearly we have some that aren't working, our visiting judge budget isn't low, we keep having visiting judges, 
that that it would put the pressure on them to actually perform. There ought to be accountability for failure to perform. Laura Johnston. I just wanted to say that I, I think we need to look at the expense, right? This is a, oh, the beginning of a conversation. And, and I think people generally, when they vote for judges, they, they don't even necessarily know who they're voting for. They vote based on name. And we don't pay that much attention to the court system unless we're part of it. Maybe it's just, it's happening. And and I think people need to pay attention. This needs to be a public discussion. We need to look at the numbers, the cases, the cost and the jail population. We've talked on this podcast about how the population of the jail keeps going up and they might have to build a bigger jail if we can't get it under control. Well, I feel like this is part of that discussion. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How easy is it to get a Pfizer booster shot for the coronavirus? Laura Johnson, we put a story together on this to make sure people are aware of it. We've talked a little bit about it. Julie Washington put it all together yesterday. What did she say? Yeah, she said it's really simple. And Julie has this great story where she runs down where you can get it and how easy it is. And if you need an appointment. And some places you can walk right in, like Rite Aid or Walgreens. Many days you can just come in and get your booster shot. The Cuyahoga County Board of Health is having at least three clinics where they're going to be able to give the booster shot. So this is, I mean, so many things change so fast in the pandemic, right? But it is hard to believe that this is the process now when people were looking frantically online just six months ago to try to get the first shot. And she also, one of the questions we had was back in the spring, there were all sorts of requirements to keep this stuff deeply frozen. And she explained why that's changed. It's it's got the containers themselves with dry ice, keep this cold enough. And so any, any pharmacy can have it. That's why it's available pretty much at every corner. Right. You can just keep, keep, keep it in the, the shipping container, basically replenish the dry ice, or you can take it out of the container, put it in a temperature monitored freezer for 30 days, then a fridge for 14 days. So that's giving you, like, I don't know, almost two months before you, you know, you need it. And I'm sure they're using it up before that. So I wonder how much stockpile we had when people, you know, we were trying, you know, paying people to go get the vaccine, please, please, please go get a shot. If this will, the booster will winnow down that backlog. And if there will end up being a time when it's a little harder to find, but we're not going back to the spring. Thank God. Well, the pharmacist she talked to said that the the supply is not a problem. And it's, I mean, look, it's another good news story. They really got their act together. It's, it's working very efficiently and people who want it can get it. Uh, It's good to see. Check out Julie's story on cleveland.com. If there was evidence that Aaron Lawson, who killed four people had mental illness, why is he still set to be executed? Haven't the rules changed on executing the mentally ill? Lisa Garvin, what was the logic the Supreme Court used to say, nope, he still goes and gets executed? Uh, They said that was aggravating circumstances. So Ohio law, and it's a new law, says that anyone with serious mental illness does not get the death penalty, but gets life without parole instead. But the Supreme Court found that Aaron Lawson, there were aggravating, this was a very heinous crime. I mean, basically he... He targeted his ex, his ex-girlfriend, um, and he. I think what they, what the judges were really horrified about was that he called the school where her eight-year-old son was attending and said, send him home to his house instead of his grandparents' house. So this was premeditation. I mean, he wanted that kid home. You know, so and he ended up killing uh, not only Stacy Holston. This was in October 7, 2017, down in La- uh, Lawrence County. He killed her, her parents, 
He injured her current husband by stabbing him repeatedly and then uh, killed the eight-year-old boy. And then there was a two-year-old boy there in the house that was thankfully unharmed. So uh, Justice Sharon Kennedy, in her opinion, said that these were aggravating circumstances and that he did not deserve to get life without parole. But quite honestly, we're not putting people to death in Texas or in in. Ohio right now. So, I mean, it is life without parole anyway, but yeah, this was, I think this was the right decision. Yeah. Mike DeWine has not signed a death warrant since he took office, shows no indication he will, but eventually somebody else will be in his chair. It could be a year from January or it could be, you know, four years from January or five years from January. We'll have to see. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Is there a way to measure how much of a difference the American Rescue Plan can make with the huge amount of money it has sent to communities in Northeast Ohio? Leila Tassi, I was fascinated by what the Cleveland Fed put out to give this a measurement. Yes, our stimulus watch reporter Robin Goyce spotted this interesting report. It offers a, a great analysis of the the impact of the money governments are receiving from the American Rescue Plan. They've compared each state or local government's windfall to their 2020 tax revenue, just to emphasize how transformative the money could potentially be. So in Cleveland's case, the city's $511 million in stimulus funds exceeds its 2020 tax revenue at 100.7% of last year's tax collections. Cuyahoga County's is about 30%, and the state of Ohio is at about 17%. And generally, research found the ratios of the stimulus money to 2020 tax revenue for almost all the states are between 10 to 30%, and Ohio is right in the middle of the pack. So for, for local governments, the ratios average 25 to 45 percent. So that shows you just how, how high Cleveland is by comparison. And this is really, you know, they, they, they said in the report, once in a generation, op- an opportunity to invest more than an entire year's worth of tax revenue without taking on new debt. And uh, we saw a couple other cities that were, that were very high in that ratio. East Cleveland has the highest ratio in the state. 258.5% of their tax, which I guess isn't surprising given that probably their tax collections are quite low. But uh, only 17 cities in the country had ratios greater than 200% and Cleveland Heights or East Cleveland was one of them. So yeah, that that was staggering that they were one of a tiny group that was uh, over the 200 percent number. But it just it does show just how much the federal government was taking care of a city like Cleveland with that, because a lot of them didn't get that much. So good stuff. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson's state of the city speeches have been hit and miss with more misses than hits. Did he have anything new to say in his 16th and final speech Thursday evening? Leila Tassi, I watched this and it was yet another <laughs> civics lesson by Frank Jackson yep. explaining what an enterprise fund is and going through <laughs> step by step. I mean, I guess in his mind, it's called the state of the city. So in painstaking detail, he's going to give you the state of the city. But it was his last one. And it seemed like at the end, he did not want to leave the stage. Yeah, I agree. I really felt that way. It seemed like there was a bittersweetness to how he was wrapping it up. You know, and and the one nugget of news that we salvaged from his mostly boring rambling summation of his years in office was was the fact that the the Greater Cleveland Partnership will be handling the plan to revitalize the lakefront. At least that's that's what he said. So so there you go. That that might make 
you know, that might give more gravity to the Browns vision for that land bridge between downtown and the waterfront. We, we hadn't heard that news before. But otherwise, Jackson really took this time to reflect upon what he views as the achievements of his administration. And that includes, you know, the federal consent decree to bring constitutional policing to Cleveland and and this Cleveland Schools Transformation Plan and the fact that the city remained fiscally solvent under Jackson, despite the Great Recession and the economic devastation of the pandemic. He said he, he'll actually be handing the city over to a successor with a budget carryover of more than $100 million and a rain, rainy day fund of $45 million. And the next administration will will have all that American Rescue Plan money to spend, too. But Jackson also talked about the challenges that remain, you know, the violence epidemic, which, of course, claimed his own grandson in recent weeks. And he called upon the state and federal governments to take action to close loopholes that allow guns to end up in the wrong hands. And, you know, I, I think this was the longest of these speeches he's ever delivered. He said but... it was. <laughs> he, and he said it could have been much longer, which would have it, been agonizing. It felt Here's like the, the longest. He he th- 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 this was so repetitive of of so many of his other speeches and his teletown halls. And and I get it. He I think he's worried that nobody's going to remember his legacy. And and he wanted to set the record straight one last time. I, I just I, w- I would have done the big moment. Right. I would have come out and said, Look, I'm not going to go through all the stuff I go through all the time. Go listen to my old speeches about that on the consent decree and all of that. You know, I'm going to go off with my my 10 best hits. Right. And 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 take people through what what he thinks were the most significant things he did in his time. And, and you know, and then and then end with some humor. You know, I mean, he did try to explain it is what it is, which he had done mm-hmm. with our editorial board. I don't know, a year ago or so. And there, there is something to it. I, I just it was it, it just was the civics lesson again. And it's like, OK, I don't know that that's what people are here for. He did thank everybody for the, the their their uh, what they sent to him and said to him during his family's bereavement. Um, and he did thank everybody uh, for allowing him to be the mayor. He did take a shot without naming him <laughs> at Justin Bibb, one of the candidates for mayor. He, did. he said, you know, I, pe- people ask me, you know, I want to run for mayor. I want to run for city council. What should I do? And he said, you got to know the game before you get in the game. And if you don't know the game, you're going to get taken advantage of. And, and uh, you're going to have to break your word to people. And if you don't know what your purpose is, I mean, that was completely aimed at Justin Bibb. He, of course, has uh, endorsed Kevin K- uh, Kelly, uh, which I, I thought was a little bit, you know, out of place in a state of the city speech. What did you think? Yeah, I agreed. You know, it, it it seemed like it was kind of he he meant it. He directed it at political newcomers in general, but the audience sort of chuckled at that, which to me had a sense of knowing what what he was really alluding to there. And, and with his endorsement of Kelly, it, it did seem like it was easy to connect the dots to Justin Bibb. But um, but yeah, he just seemed kind of at the end, like he was struggling to find a way to conclude his his 16 years in office and and he just sort of you know thanked his constituents and family and and said you know like you said he explained his his euphemism it is what it is as as not a fatalistic notion but that it means he accepts reality even if it's painful which which i feel like has a a particularly poignant um message in in the moment that he is in personally with the, the loss of his grandson um so I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. He missed the big moment and he has such a hard time 
bringing home the the good quote. You know, there were a couple moments where he started down a path and I just was like, this is it. This is the quotable moment we've been waiting 16 years for. And then he just sort of flubbed yeah. the end of this, the line. <laughs> yeah. He needs help in the writing. I, I do feel for him. I, I mean, if he's worried about his legacy, he shouldn't. You know, he's the longest serving mayor ever. There's a lot of stuff that he got going that I think will be ascribed to him. I, the thing that blew me away, he started to talk about Opportunity Carter. That was a, he could have had the big moment right there. And Opportunity Carter, which I started working on 20 damn years ago when I was city right. council president, is going to open in two weeks. You know, that's 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 what I feel proud of is we're going to bring economic development to a neighborhood that's been abandoned. And he, and he missed the moment. He just talked about You're Opportunity right. Carter. You're right. It was like, wow, blew the and line that really is that really is a big part of his legacy bringing that and closing the loop on that uh so he yeah you're right he did miss that i i think over time people are going to respect him quite a bit and you know he doesn't talk about this the guy has integrity he is an honest man and that's saying something in politics today. Yeah. Do you know that he, and that just reminded me about the comment he made at the end when he was thanking all of his constituents and supporters and, and whatnot. He also, did you catch when he said, um, you know, I want to thank all of those who, you know, I've, I've worked with and done business with, you know, over the years because they never came to me and asked me to do anything that they, that I, that they knew I would know to be wrong. You, did you catch that moment where he said, like, I did, but I ever approached him with with a, an untoward request, you know? Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not buying that, though, I, unless he's <laughs> just parsing who, who he's talking about, like the people that are truly in his corner who worked with him never tried to compromise him. But I know people have gone into his office trying to to get stuff that's bad and that mm. he he has not done it. I mean, look, he talked about having a sense of purpose. That man has always known what his purpose was at City Hall and he's lived true to it. And that mm -hmm. is the best thing you can say about somebody who has been in that role. He didn't let the winds move him. He knew the path he wanted to follow. He followed it. But that's not for him to say, right? You know, from the line from Hamilton, you don't get to say who lives, who dies, or who tells your story. He doesn't get to tell his story. It'll be left for others to do. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That's it for the week. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Hope you all have a great weekend. And we'll be back, some of us at least, I think somebody's off, on Monday for another discussion of the news. 